In this episode, we cover how Python is being used to understand the electrical markets and grid in Australia. Our guest, Jack Simpson, has used Python to uncover a bunch of interesting developments as the country has adopted more and more solar energy. We round out the episode looking at some of the best practices for high-performance, large data processing in Pandas and beyond. In addition to that, we also spend some time on how Jack used Python and OpenCV, computer vision, to automate the study of massive bee colonies and behaviors. Spoiler alert, that involved gluing wingding fonts on the backs of bees. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 320, recorded June 6th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Square and Linode, and the transcripts are provided by Assembly AI. Please check out what all three of them are offering. It really helps support the show. Jack, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you, Michael. It's great to meet you after hearing your voice for so many years. <laughs> it's so great to have you on the show. It's it's always fun to have people who are listeners but have interesting stories to tell. Come on the show and you know it, you definitely have some interesting stories about the energy grid and doing data science around well, really important stuff like keeping the lights on in Australia. Absolutely. I, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to diving into that stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Absolutely. Before we get to it, though, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming and what brought you to Python? Yeah, well, I guess I have a very strange background. I actually uh, started off at uh, university uh, enrolling in uh, journalism and politics right okay. at the start of the GFC. I had never programmed before and I didn't even realize I was interested in it. And my lecturers kept telling me how many uh, journalists were losing their uh, jobs during the financial crisis. And so I actually uh, dropped out and uh, was trying to consider what I wanted to do. And I, I'd always had a uh, passion for biology and science. And my hobby was I was actually a beekeeper. I had uh, six of my own hives at home. I really loved that. Oh, amazing. Are these like honeybee type of bees or what kind of bees? Yes, uh, honeybees. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the ones that sting. I actually also had a uh, couple of native Australian native bees, Tetragonula carbonaria, which are I'm not sure if you've heard of them before, but they're actually, they almost look like tiny little flies. They're stingless bees. And they will actually make their hives out of the resin of uh, trees. And they will build their brood in this beautiful kind of spiral pattern going up through the hive. And so I was, I was just really interested in, uh, I guess, all things bee and insect related at the time. And so I actually started blogging about bees and beekeeping and that was actually my introduction to uh, code because I, had a, I think I had a website on Blogger. And one day I suddenly thought, well, I'd love to actually be able to make my own website. How do I do that? And yeah. so I started learning HTML and uh, JavaScript. And it was literally just so I could talk about my bees. I had no interest in programming <laughs> Amazing. Before. Well, I think so many people get into programming that way who don't necessarily feel like my goal is to go be a programmer, but they just really have something they're into and programming is almost in the way, right? It's just like something you've got to figure out so that you can actually get to the thing that you actually like. But then a lot of people find out, well, hey, this is actually kind of cool. And what else can I do now that I know this, right? Absolutely. That was really what made me uh, change my degree. So initially I was going to do bi a pure biology degree. And so I decided I would do biology and web development. And as I kind of went along with the degree, I suddenly started realizing that the programming skills I was picking up during my degree. So I learned, you know, PHP, Perl, and Python, suddenly I realized that these skills could actually help me with working with scientific data. Or, uh, yeah. I we kind of hit this point where there's just so much genomic data. Really, most people, these, at the time I was doing undergrad, but one of the things I've really noticed is most people these days that enroll in, in a biology PhD, you join the lab and it's almost like, right, you're learning Python or you're learning R. There's no other way you're working with this data. And so suddenly I kind of hit this point where I was like, wow, these kind of technical skills were letting me do things and be useful in ways that I never thought. And it let me answer research questions that I was really fascinated by. And that was my, uh, my motivation to actually, I guess, go into and do um, a PhD and, and try wow. and take those skills further. What was your PhD in? So it was in computational biology. It was trying to develop software 
to automate the analysis of honeybee behavior in the hive. So the thing that was interesting was it was both a physical setup and the code as well. So the physical side was actually how do we set up a beehive in a building with with a, kind of like a glass window in so that I can film them with an infrared camera in the dark? And how do I put little tags with patterns on them on the backs of the bees that I can then use Python and machine learning to identify and track over the course of several weeks? And, and that kind of process ended up being much harder than I had anticipated because when I, when I started out, I read a couple of papers by some computer scientists who mentioned that they'd printed out some card tags and they said that they filmed the bees for a couple of hours, got the data and did an analysis. And I thought, great, I'm going to do that. Problem solved. <laughs> it was only until later that I realized the reason that they uh, only filmed them for a couple of hours was because that was how long it took the bees to chew the uh, cardboard off each other in the oh, hive. No. Oh, did and they it, help each other? Like, hey, I've got this thing on my back. Get it off me. Yes. Yes, they actually did. They actually, and, and that was the thing I came, I would actually find time and time again, I would come up with the material and I would try and stick it on the back of the bees and you would see <laughs> their friends effectively come over and start trying to pry it off them in the hive. And so it was actually a process to find something that didn't, I guess, trigger them, so to speak. And, and one of the things, a really immensely frustrating experience I had when I was doing these experiments was I thought I had found the perfect fabric and the perfect glue to put them on the bees. And I spent hours tagging hundreds of them. I put them into the hive. And then I came back, I would come back a few hours later and all my tags had disappeared. And I couldn't understand why. And I kept doing it. And then at one point I thought, you know what, I'm going to put a bucket outside the hive entrance just to see what happens. And I'm going to watch in the dark. And what actually happened was the bees didn't like the smell of the glue so they were actually physically grabbing bees that I'd tagged, dragging to the, them to the entrance and flinging them out of the hive. Wow. And, because, and because the hive was, uh, because these bees were juvenile bees, they were too young to fly yet, the ants were actually dragging them away. So I thought my tags were dropping off or being pulled off, but actually my poor bees were getting eaten by the ants because they couldn't fly away. Oh my goodness. And so I I guess it's another example as well. You know, when you've got missing data, understand the process. Sometimes the process that made that data missing is significant in a way. I would have never guessed. That's really pretty insane, actually. And so the solution for, for dealing with this was I would actually go through the process of tagging the bees. Then I would put them in this heated incubator on a, on a frame of honey for several hours until all of the smell had kind of faded away. And then I could introduce them to the hive and they would be accepted. Oh, I see. Okay. Wait, basically wait till it dried and it was really on them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wait until, yeah, all the fumes were gone and then they would be accepted and then it would work. Because I think this was the real challenge of my project was we weren't interested in tracking, showing that we could write software that could track the bees. We, we had a, the specific application was to look at the social development over several weeks of these bees. So we needed a kind of experimental setup and the code to support it that would let us look at these extended periods of behavior. Did they have different markings based on like their age or their their role in the colony? Um, or so like, were they all tagged the same and you just said, well, they kind of move around like this or were there like, did you group them or something? What I would often do is I had use a laser engraver to burn patterns in the fabric that I would put on them. And so each bee had a unique pattern that I could use to identify it. Like a QR code on the bee? Uh, kind of like that, but not... In fact, I think if, if, if you scroll through the website to the bottom of the page... <laughs> oh, there, yeah, there's some right there, there. There's some little patterns. This was some initial prototypes, but at the bottom, just if you scroll up a little bit more, the last image, yep, that one. I was literally using a Wingdings font to try out different patterns. Wingdings, okay. On, on the bees. Because I just had, uh, the idea was to have a uh, relatively uh, inexpensive 4K camera that could pick up the different patterns. Of course, if you had a really expensive high-resolution camera, then you could do more with QR codes, for instance. And what I would do is I would do these experiments where I would, half of the bees would be, that I would introduce, that would all be juvenile, except I would also mark the queen so I could know how they were interacting with the queen. But half the juvenile bees I would introduce into the hive would receive a label that I could reference later on, and half would, half would receive a, a different label that I knew about. And, and the reason I did this was so I could actually do these, have these control and treatment groups in my experiment because I would, I would do these experiments uh, where I would treat the, uh, 
the bees with uh, caffeine to see how it would actually <laughs> affect their social development in the hive. I guess to give a little bit more context to that, diving a little bit into the way that bees uh, develop, you could almost think of a worker bee in the hive, like the pictures I have on my site. The, the jobs that a bee does over its lifetime are, are influenced by how old it is. So these juvenile bees I was first introducing to the colony, they really would just have quite menial colonies. They would do little cleaning tasks around the hive. They wouldn't do much. Then when they're a little bit older, they would start nursing other juvenile bees. And then the eldest bees are the ones that you actually see out and about flying and, and collecting nectar and uh, pollen. So those are actually the el eldest of the bees in the colony, typically. And so I wanted to see how this caffeine would affect that kind of behavioral process in, in the juvenile bees. <laughs> how interesting. Short, briefly, what did you find that caffeine does to bees? One of the things I found was it effectively meant that bees sped up how quickly they adjusted to the rhythms of the colony. Uh, so I'll, to, for a bit of context, if you're, if you're a juvenile bee in the hive, you don't really care about circadian rhythms, day-night cycles. Because you're in a hive, it's completely dark all the time. And so what we found was that, that we hadn't seen before was these juvenile bees, even though they weren't exposed to the light on the outside, they would actually pick up these circadian rhythms by interacting with the older bees that were coming back. It was effectively like a socially acquired circadian rhythm. And so what we found was that bees that were treated with caffeine effectively picked up this rhythm more quickly than bees that weren't and kind of progressed in their roles in the colony more yeah. quickly as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there was that. And I had a few other areas, but yeah, to be honest, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the work was really just making the, uh, the software and the bees all play nice <laughs> together. Yeah, it was yeah, probably absolutely. one of the most immensely, uh, I will say one, one of the things that is quite nice about the energy sector is I don't have to deal with, I guess I can deal with machines, which are a little bit more less uh, frustrating at times. More reliable, more predictable and certain, that's for sure. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Square. Payment acceptance can be one of the most painful parts of building a web app for a business. When implementing checkout, you want it to be simple to build, secure, and slick to use. Square's new web payment SDK raises the bar in the payment acceptance developer experience and provides a best-in-class interface for merchants and buyers. With it, you can build a customized branded payment experience and never miss a sale, deliver a highly responsive payments flow across web and mobile that integrates with credit cards and debit cards, digital wallets like Apple Pay and Google, ACH bank payments, and even gift cards. For more complex transactions, Follow-up actions by the customer can include completing a payment authentication step, filling in a credit line application form, or doing background risk checks on the buyer's device. And developers don't even need to know if the payment method requires validation. Square hides the complexity from the seller and guides the buyer through the necessary steps. Getting started with a new web payment SDK is easy. Simply include the web payment SDK JavaScript, flag an element on the page where you want the payment form to appear, and then attach hooks for your custom behavior. Learn more about integrating with Square's Web Payments SDK at talkpython.fm slash square, or just click the link in your podcast player's show notes. That's talkpython.fm slash square. Before we move on to the energy sector, so just give us a quick overview of like the software that you used. Was Python part of this role here? Yes, absolutely. So I used a uh, mix of Python and OpenCV for a lot of the image process processing. And of course, TensorFlow and Keras as uh, for training my neural network to identify the different tags. And that actually ended up being quite an interesting process, building up that data set and improving it over time. Because one of the things I found when I started trying to train that data set was I thought, okay, I can take my patterns, film them, add a little bit of noise and rotation, and then that's my kind of starter, you know, machine learning model. The problem was that when you put the tag on the bee, the way that they kind of walk around the hive, you'll see different kind of angles of, they kind of have this bit of wobble walk as they go around. So yeah. it kind of introduces this level of distortion to the tag. And then other, uh, and so then also you could have other situations where bees would walk over each other, they'd be block occluded tags as well. So one of the things I ended up having to do was I had to introduce 
a class to my uh, a predictive class to my model that was literally just like the uh, I don't know what this is class. And effectively, the idea was I'm going to see this bee. I'm going to have multiple attempts to classify this bee as it's walking around. So I want to only attempt a classification when I'm seeing enough of the yeah. tag and I'm confident enough in that to attempt it. And so that was one of the one of the techniques I found that helped improve the the classification. And really, it ended up just becoming a process where um, I would I had a bit of a pipeline that would go through. It would extract tags. It would use the model at the current iteration to, to label them. I would then go in and manually review it and then figure out where it had stuffed up, where it was doing well, and then use that corrected data set to retrain the model and then improve and see how well that iteration did. And it became kind of like a, uh, almost like a semi-supervised problem to an extent when I was building it out. And at a certain point, it became just as good as me at doing these classifications. And then it oh, kind of effectively, crazy. then it was fully automated as well. Yeah. But, uh, I think I ended up labeling about seven or 800,000 images as part of doing this. And my, my wife was actually, she was a, a PhD student in uh, working in uh, genetics at the time. She was helping me in her spare time. So uh, she does not look favorably <laughs> upon that, uh, on, on that project. <laughs> she not the most fun she probably doesn't love wingding fawns. Maybe in a bee <laughs> comes by, she's like, oh, not you again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I'd say, yeah, so Python and OpenCV were, were big ones. And then the other yeah. tool I was using a lot of was Python Scython library where I would, for certain parts that I wanted to run really efficiently, I wrote those in C++ and then used uh, Scython to expose some of those methods to it. And that worked amazingly well. It was so impressive how you could pa- call, pass a list, a Python list to my, um, my C++ class, and it would interpret that as a vector, and then it would pass back the information as well. Wow. I think this, this is the reason I'm such a fan of Python, is just how well it lets me do so many different things. That I'm working on. That's a really interesting point. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, Python is slow for this or it's slow for that. And yet here's all these really uh, intensive computational things that Python seems to be the preferred language for. And I think this is one of the the hidden secrets that's not apparent as people come into the ecosystem, right? Obviously people have been here for a long time and they they kind of know that story, but you know, as people come in, because there's there's all sorts of people coming into the Python world, drawn in a little bit like you, you talked about how You started out in biology, not necessarily to be in software development specifically, but then you kind of got sucked into it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think all of the conversations around the performance of Python is super interesting. It's like, oh, it's it's really slow, except for in this time where it's like as fast as C++. (laughs) Wait a minute, is it it slow or is it fast as C++? Well, it's both, right? It it varies, but you can bring in these extra like turbo boosts, right? Like Cython and or do your work in NumPy rather than in, in straight list and stuff like that. Absolutely. And like one of the uh, initially when I started off my PhD, I actually wrote an initial prototype version of it all in C++ using OpenCV, OpenC++ uh, library and a machine learning, uh, a deep learning library called Cafe, which was a bit of a thing back in the day. And the pro- that process for dealing with data and even just converting data between like, I think the best thing about Python is the fact that NumPy arrays is just understood by all the scientific libraries, whereas sometimes with other languages, it can be painful moving data between different libraries and tools. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. And so like, I, I remembered at one point during my PhD with, with that initial C++ version, I had like a page of code to convert between an OpenCV matrix and a cafe, I think, blob. And it was a page of code that I was terrified of breaking because I didn't understand how it worked. <laughs> Whereas Python, it was like everything I can move between, you know, scikit-learn, pandas, and all these other libraries. And it's all kind of got that common foundation that makes me really efficient and that I understand really well. That's a really interesting insight that there's this sort of common data structure across the libraries. Because you're right. I remember in C++ and other languages like C Sharp and and whatnot, this one will take something like this and you've got to reorder the data and reformat it to pass it over. And if you have to do that back and forth, it, it completely slow things down, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, very interesting. In a way as well, I, I really loved that the the Python stack has let me do things in during my PhD and then post-PhD as well. It just The skills that I developed in analytics here 
I've gone on to be able to use that in so many different places. For, for instance, I, one of the pieces of analysis I did was look, I used Python's Network X library to look at the social interactions between the queen and worker bees. And I would build out these network graphs that would explore the, uh, the number of interactions and the length of time of those interactions between the queen and the worker bee. And this actually recording independent interactions actually became important because sometimes the queen would literally fall asleep behind another worker and it would look like she loves that worker, but she just was resting for like <laughs> over an hour or two. What I've actually found is that those skills for working with data and with, with network analysis, when I was working consulting, I would use NetworkX to analyze the corporate structure of organizations that we're doing an org review for. And then more recently, I've done work in the energy sector looking at building out networks of power stations as well. And so it's, I think that's, that's one of the things I, I love about this area is that you have this kind of transferable skill set that you're more limited by what you can think of for using it by rather than what you can actually do with it, with it itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of people, if they're out there listening and they're doing, you know, academic type stuff or working in one area, but maybe that's not the area they necessarily want to stay in. A lot of these skills are super transferable. One of the things that's blown my mind as I've spent more and more time in the software industry was I remember I was doing professional training and I spent one week at a stock brokerage in New York City teaching programming. And then I spent you know, two weeks later, I was like at an Air Force base working with some of the engineers there. The stuff that those two groups need to know, it sounds like it's entirely different worlds, right? It's like 90% identically the same. It's just a little bit of what do you do with that once you know it? Like what's the secret sauce on top of it that puts it together? But yeah, and it sounds like you kind of got that skill in your research. Absolutely. And, and I think this is one of the um, things I've noticed is that some PhDs can struggle to transition into industry. And often it's because there's people on the industry side that don't really understand how those skills can help them. But at the same time, I think it's actually a skill to be able to explain how you can link what you already know, what you're capable of and solve their kind of business problems. And in fact, I think when I went into management consulting and I would do some work for some of the partners, eventually it took me a little while to figure out that they weren't that interested in you know the code I was doing or even some of the raw data. But if I could figure out a way to link that to the business problem they were trying to solve, then they were interested. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to kind of communicate and act as like a bridge between those was something I didn't realize was a skill, but it, it is hugely valuable in organizations. I've really noticed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. One final question about your research before we get into the energy sector. That What year did you do that? Work? Oh, uh, so 2014 to 2017. Yeah. And that's not that long ago. And yet the machine learning story has probably progressed really quite a bit with deep learning, transfer learning, all sorts of stuff going on, the different use of, of GPUs and tensor compute units and whatnot. What would it look like now if you're doing it versus then? What would be different? I think now one of the big differences was really that um, TensorFlow only came out towards the second half of my PhD. So I think a lot of the... the uh, so I think that, that was a difference. Having more accessible machine learning libraries and tools really made a big difference. The other one was, I think when I started my project, I actually spent a lot of time playing around with, with you know, now if you started your PhD, you would go image analysis, it's going to be deep learning. Whereas when I started, I was actually pointed in the uh, direction of, oh, go check out, you know, support vector machines, try out a random forest, try out a whole bunch of different feature engineering and machine learning techniques. And so I spent a lot of time kind of moving around between those before I literally had a, um, I got in touch with a researcher in the computer science department because I, I was in the biology department doing this work. And he literally, I had a chat with him and he literally looked at what I was doing and he said, use deep learning. He's, and he said, He's, go check out, check out these libraries, but this is what you need to do it. And I think, yeah, in, in a way, like, that type of uh, the libraries and the understanding about how you would solve this problem now is uh, is a lot further along and probably would have shortcut a lot of my uh, initial frustration compared to yeah probably but think of all the lessons yeah. you've learned with those late yeah. nights of it not working and and whatnot right uh, one yeah. other thing uh, really quickly is I I love to look at this graph here this the Stack Overflow trends and I'll I'll link to this in the show notes 
there was back in 2017 article by Stack Overflow, their data science team set called the incredible growth of Python. And they predicted, oh, Python's going to overtake some of these languages. And you're not going to believe it. It's going to be more popular than JavaScript, more popular than Java. And people are like, no way. This has got to be something wrong with the data. And obviously, here we are, you know, in 2021, where I think they underestimated. Honestly, I don't have a, the exact picture in my mind, but I'm pretty sure they underestimated the, the last couple of years, which is pretty interesting. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is that 2012, you know, Python had been around for at that time, 25 years or something. It was well known. It was a fairly popular language, but it was kind of just steady state. And then it's like somebody just lit the afterburner on that language. And it just, you know, it just started going up and up right around that time. And this is the time that you got into Python as well, more or less, right? Absolutely. I feel like so many people came from these not traditional programming spaces. I mean, still interested in programming, but not like a CS degree type of programming. In, and it just brought so much diversity in terms of the problems being solved. And I, I think this graph is exactly what's happening here. It sounds like you're part of that, making that curve go up there. Yes, yes yeah, I guess so. And, and I think for me as well, when Pandas came out, I think around in 2012 for working with you know, data frames as objects, I, I've used R. I really liked that kind of data frame feature in R initially. And it was a little bit frustrating before Pandas was a thing, being able to, uh, having to deal with you know, CSV files and having to treat them as lists and indexing. So when Pandas became a thing, that was almost one of the big reasons I pushed into using Python for so much. And, and I still feel like I've been using Pandas for, yeah, I guess eight or nine years. And I'm pretty sure the project I'm on currently, I'm pretty sure I've learned a few extra things about the library just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's crazy how that works, right? You're like, I've been doing this forever. How did I not know about this part of it, right? Absolutely. Amazing, amazing. All right, well, super cool project you had there. Let's talk about energy. So you work for the Australian Energy Market Commission? Yes. Yeah. What's this? What do you do there? You could almost think of them as the, uh, the rule maker for the energy market. We, we don't run the energy market. That's the Australian Energy Market Operator. But they effectively pass the legislation that determines how people have to act within the energy market. The reason I really joined the uh, organization was because when I was working in consulting, I started doing work in the energy sector. And I do work for, you know, energy retailers, the people that, you know, you pay for your electricity. I just work for some industrial companies. And one of the things I found was when I bumped into the wholesale energy data, it was almost like this, what was it, the, uh, you know, the, the city of gold in some way. It was immense amounts of reasonably well-structured and cleaned data where the limitation wasn't, you know, the data or cleaning it. The limitation was understanding the domain well enough to do interesting things with it. Right. Okay. And so that's really became my obsession was to learn as much as I could so I could actually do more and more interesting things with the data. And so the reason I, um, I joined the AEMC was because it's one of the most amazing workplaces in terms of the capability of everyone there is so passionate and incredible at what they do. And so just being around these people and learning from them is just an experience in itself. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds super interesting. And it sounds like things like your network X experience, you know, there's probably a lot of networks and energy and suppliers and, and whatnot there might go together. Absolutely. Yeah. Basically, there's it's kind of a market that they set the price, energy, and then generators like private companies that are, you know, have power plants and solar farms and whatnot. They can decide whether or not they want to participate at that very moment in the grid or how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this is one of the fascinating things about the wholesale energy market. You can almost think that every five minutes, the market operator is effectively running an auction where all power stations around on the east coast of Australia submitting in bids for how much they were willing to sell different volumes of electricity at. So for instance, a wind farm might say that they will sell this volume of power quite cheaply, whereas a gas generator that has quite a high cost of fuel will set a higher price. And the market operator will take all of these bids and it knows the locations of these generators. It knows the uh, capabilities of the transmission lines and the network. And it will run this linear optimization to figure out, okay, what is the cheapest mix of generators that I should dispatch to satisfy demand? 
while still making sure the network is secure. Okay. So it's like trying to optimize certain goals. Like we are going to need however much energy in the grid at this very moment. And these people are willing to supply it at this, like, you know, who do we take however much energy from until we get like both enough people that are willing to participate from a financial perspective and then what people also need, huh? Yes, absolutely. And and that's the thing that's so fascinating about this market is that at all times, uh, supply and demand have to be matched. Very, very carefully because it'll break the grid if if there's, well, too much is probably worse than too little because you just get a brownout, right? But too much could destroy things, right? Yeah, you, you don't want too much. If you have too much, then you need generators to start to try and reduce their output. And at the same time, if you have too little, and then it, it can also create problems. And, and in fact, the, the grid has to be kept at this such a precise level of balance that if it actually, uh, you have too much or too little for too long, it will damage the machines that are connected to it. And in fact, to protect themselves, you will actually see them start to disconnect. And it can actually create these kind of cascading problems. So unless you, uh, we actually had a, uh, a fascinating um, example recently in Queensland where a uh, turbine, a coal turbine blew up and it then tripped a whole bunch of other coal power stations that then couldn't, uh, that then stopped creating load. And so you suddenly had this situation where you had all this demand for electricity and suddenly they just lost all of this generation ability. And what actually happened is the system just started disconnecting, well, it caused a blackout, but yeah. it was this automated yeah. system in a fraction of a second that just started disconnecting load or demand to try and balance it as quickly as possible to try and arrest the problem. So and what, one of the things I've actually been doing has been looking at this at like a, uh, on a uh, four second basis, the events that happened on this day and how different units responded to these events. It's amazing. Like there's, there's almost like the energy sector and the, and the market. It's almost like there's the physical infrastructure of make and making everything work and all that amazing engineering. And then there's the financial market and the bids and everything like that that's built on top of it. And the market and the bids are fascinating. But at the end of the day, everything has to bow to the engineering. It has to work. Right. It has to well. work. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's all just going to come apart. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, AR out in the live stream says, uh, is AEMC doing anything with Energy Web? I'm not sure if I've come across that before, but I'd, I'd be interested in looking into it. Yeah. And then also, uh, it sounds like DERMS, what you're describing, or D-E-R-M-S. I'm not sure whether how you pronounce it. That might be something, in, an acronym from the, uh, from the, the, the U.S. Uh, energy market. So everyone has yeah. their own kind of different acronyms. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes it easy, right? To not even be consistent. If you go to the uh, the market operator's website, they have a glossary page where you can just scroll for, for all those days on all the acronyms <laughs> that are used in the sector. Probably like an acronym thesaurus. We call it this. What do they call it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> this portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Linode. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode to see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support, which is offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to the ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers the best price to performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. Visit talkpython.fm Linode and sign up with your Google account your GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's talkpython.fm slash Linode, or just click the link in your podcast player's show notes. And thank them for supporting TalkPython. So we have on the graph here, this picture on the screen, where energy went negative, actually. And so this is where people are willing to pay to take energy that you've generated, like that sounds completely insane. Yeah, I know. It sounds weird. So yeah, to explain explain this figure... What's been happening this year in uh, South Australia, the wholesale price of electricity has been around, averaged around negative $20 during the middle of the day, pretty much consistently. And so the way this works is because the generators submit bids for how much they're willing to sell their electricity for, because 
they'll, they'll effectively, when they run the optimization, the price of the bid that satisfies demand is the price that everyone gets paid. So what a lot of generators will do is they'll bid in quite cheaply at negative prices so that they're sure that they will get dispatched. But if everyone bids in at negative prices, then everyone gets the negative price. <laughs> and so what we've actually been seeing is because there's now so much generation in the middle of the day, you're ending up with these really fascinating market events like, yeah, these negative prices where literally you can get paid to consume electricity. As a consumer, that sounds pretty good. You know, get it nice and chilly and we'll all be fine. True. Yeah, uh, one of the true. drivers of this, it sounds to me like, is solar energy in Australia, right? Yes. Yes, we now have so much rooftop solar. I can't remember the exact percentage, but a significant percentage of Australian households now have uh, solar panels because the cost is, has come down so much. And so a lot of our work has involved looking at how that is impacting um, the grid. Because if you imagine historically the energy market, it was a process where you know the market operator could instruct generators to turn on or turn off. And now we're in a world where there's so much of these kind of small scale solars that solar that you can't tell what to do. How do you factor that into balancing supply and demand in the grid? Yeah, well, it definitely sounds like some interesting Python must be a play there. So give us an uh, overview of sort of the kind of tools you're using, the types of problems you're solving. Yeah, sure. In the, uh, in the solar place, we've been using a Python, a software package called SAM, which is the system advisor model, which is actually released by the... Um, the uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory in, in the States. And so what it lets you do is if you provide solar irradiance data and, and data from weather stations, you can use it to simulate the generation of rooftop in different areas around the country on a granular, on a half hourly basis over the course of the year. And so what this lets us do is I can use, they've got a Python library that lets me kind of call and run this tool and I can simulate different PV system sizes and different locations and angles and all for setups all around the country. So I can effectively simulate hundreds and hundreds of different PV systems. And if I combine that with how much the household is uh, consuming and what the actual cost of electricity was in those half hourly intervals, you can suddenly build up a picture for the economic effect of different of PV panels for different households around the country. Yeah, how interesting. Is this the right thing I pulled up here, this PySAM? Yes, and I will say that for your US listeners, the laboratory release all of the, um, the data for the US mainland in a format that's ready for you guys to go. I had to, a big part of my project was actually trying to turn the Australian data into a format that this program could understand. And that in itself was an interesting exercise in uh, data cleaning and manipulation because, uh, for instance, all of the data on the irradiance for the country came as, as uh, tens of thousands of these text files that were just these kind of grids, which pretty much they said, each value represents a five by five kilometer grid on the Australian mainland. It starts at this coordinate. So I had to pretty much try and convert this text file into a map and then convert that into format so I could know the how, where the house fell in that as well. Oh, wow. How interesting. Yeah, that's, you're normally taking a bunch of text files and turning, like piecing those together in a map, but I guess you do. Eugene, who was on the show a little while ago about the life lessons from machine learning, had brought an interesting quote. It was something to the effect of the data cleaning is not the grunt work. It is the work of like so much of this, right? Like it's getting Ooh. everything right, making sure it's correct, converting it, formatting it, and then you feed it off to the magic library and get the answer, right? Yep. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, the, the lessons that you learn from working with and, and cleaning the data often help inform your analysis later on. For instance, one of the things I was doing recently was I've been trying to correct for errors in this really large data set measuring output from these power stations. And so one of the pieces of advice I received was that if I see a um, data where, the, val where the, the generation value from the power station does not change. It effectively says this power station is generating 100 megawatts and that value doesn't change for more than a minute, for at least a minute. That means there's an error in the data collection. And so as I was you know, cleaning up the data and I implemented that and I started looking for outliers and I actually discovered that you could see for some solar farms that it looks like if I use this metric, 
that I'd implemented to pick out the bad data, it was actually removing cases where the power station, were, the, the, the solar farm, was deliberately keeping their output perfectly level to match this instruction from the market operator. And so I think this is a case where they were actually, where they were actually foregoing additional generation to be more predictable. And I would have missed this whole interesting oh, wow. power station behavior if I just, you know, if I wasn't thinking about what the implications were of these different, you know, cleaning techniques that I was doing. Okay. Yeah. Cause maybe that, that advice comes from, I don't know, a gas power plant or a coal plant where they, they have to fluctuate because, you know, whatever reason, right. And this new world, the, the assumptions changed or the, the situation changed and the assumptions didn't, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think, yeah, like in, in a way, like part of the reason I think I've always gravitated towards being passionate about combining the programming and the analytics with like deep domain expertise is that I really love when I'm, when I'm working with the data set, when I see something weird, I love that I can go, that's wrong. I can remove that or that looks weird. I'm going to investigate this because I think that's interesting. And, right. and, and one of the things I found in consulting was the projects where I didn't understand the data or the industry as well were always a bit, and I was brought into the team to provide, you know, the analytics capability, but I was effectively, you know, turning the, the understanding of others into code. I've always found them a little bit less satisfying from a personal perspective because I didn't feel like I was the one who was really, you know, getting who I felt like I was a vehicle. Other people turn their thoughts into code. Whereas I really like that if I understand the domain, then suddenly I can investigate and, and understand the area that I'm working in. Yeah. It becomes a puzzle, not just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, just more yeah. get information from these people apply it to the data, see what comes out. Yeah, for sure. You know, someone asked me recently, they were looking to hire somebody. It was, I don't know if it was exactly in the data science world, but it's, close enough. They were asking something to the effect of, should I go and try to find a computer science type of background person who I can then teach the subject matter to and kind of get them up to speed there because we need good programmers? Or should I find some people who really understand what we're doing and then try to teach them Python? Yeah. What would you say to that? I have a thought on it, but I'd love to hear yours. I think to a certain extent, the, the experience you want to have, uh, I guess, the passion for for the le- for learning about the domain, and obviously, if they understand the domain, that's really valuable. But you probably want them to be exposed at least a little bit to some programming concepts for them to know that they like it. In fact, I, I remember when I had a chat with my former boss who um, hi- hired me into my current role, and he said that his hiring philosophy is he looks for people with interesting backgrounds. You know, my background. He saw computational biology and, you know, a lot of people would be like, oh, how does that apply to the energy sector? Yeah, that does, has, that's not for us. That's something totally different, yeah, right? Exactly. But he said, you know, for him, that's an interesting story. And he could see how those skills can generalize to different areas. And then it's more about, are you passionate about the thing you're working on as well? So, like, I think people can learn, you know, people with domain expertise. I think learning Python can be like adding a bit of a superpower to your, you know, your skills and domain skills as well. But I also think that you wouldn't want to say, say for instance, you want, wouldn't want to hire someone who had good domain expertise into the team to be a programmer who discovered, who'd never programmed before and discovered yeah. they hated programming as well. Yeah, I think, I think the assumption was that they had a little bit of programming experience or they were super interested in it, but maybe not all the way there. I think the subject matter expertise is really valuable. It's, I think these days there's so many amazing libraries and Python so accessible. That, that is really important to understand like deeply what's what's happening. But you should probably also have one or two people who have like a true software engineer experience like, hey, has anybody told anyone around here about Git? We need to be using source control. And what about continuous integration? And have you heard of testing, right? Like those kinds of things matter. But I think also having this this like deep understanding of it really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Cool. Cool, cool. All right. So are there, I mean, you talked about this system advisor model. Are there other things like in, say, the astronomy space, there's AstroPy, like all the astronomers talk about, oh, this is the library, these are the things. You talked about pandas and NumPy and whatnot already, but is there something like that or a couple of libraries like that in the energy space? The closest I would probably say is the Pyomo optimization oh, yeah. library. So that uh, I think Clark mentioned on a, in a previous uh, interview. Yeah, yeah. We had Clark come on to talk about that and he was doing really cool stuff. Clark, yeah. Alex. 
Yeah. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm. I'm going to set up a uh, chat with our team with Clark. Uh, that's the plan at a later date because, uh, yeah, it was very interesting that what he was able to do during his uh, masters with uh, linear optimization. And so I think, yeah, like really, there may be libraries out there that I haven't come across uh, yet at this point. But I've really found that the whole, um, yeah, the Python stack of uh, yeah pandas, pyomo for optimizations. And even things like, uh, have you come across a library called GeoPandas at all? Yes. Which adds uh, spatial element to data frames. I use that for a lot of analysis. Yeah, GeoPandas sounds cool. I haven't done anything with it, but uh, you know, I would love an opportunity to do something fun with GeoPandas. I, I did that um, when I was working in consulting. I, did, I used that library once for looking at uh, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And then suddenly I was in demand for every proposal to be making these heat maps <laughs> of the country. I suddenly was just making, I had heat maps coming out my, uh, my everywhere. Yeah. Uh, like, but it, it's a phenomenal Jack library. knows how to make these graphs. Give it to Jack. He'll build a yeah. flag. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, GeoPandas, if you know a bit about using, you know, Pandas and data frames for working with data sets, it's pretty much like using a Pandas data frame, but it just adds a whole bunch of capability for working with spatial data sets. And, and creating beautiful figures as well. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it sounds super cool. Super cool. Yeah, it works with Shapely. And it sounds like it would work really well with your 10,000 text files almost even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of, yeah, some of those things linking it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alexander out in the live stream, just coming back, just one quick thought says, I wish people learned at least some programming. Making customs software to cover simple cases is definitely tiring. And most of the time, it's just a simple script. Yeah, I mean, kind of the automate the boring stuff could take a lot of people a long ways for sure. Yes. That, that level. Absolutely. In a way, a lot of the little things that I would go around and be useful for when I was working in consulting, if people had a little bit of programming background, then yeah, I, I wouldn't, they almost wouldn't need my input because they understood the area better, better than me. And if they could, yeah, if they had a little bit of Python and knew how to link up some data sets, then it would be like they could just automate so much of some tedious things. Their lives. You know, one thing I heard a lot in that sort of realm was, if you automate all these things, you're going to take our jobs away. What are we going to do? Like this painful, tedious manual stuff that should be automated. Like that's our job because that's what a lot of the people that I had worked with for a while, that's what they did. And they were legitimately a little concerned that if, if we wrote software that would do those things automatically, well, then what would they do? And I saw year after year, we would write that software. They would they thank goodness we don't have to do this again. And they would just solve more problems, take on more data. Like they would just do more and almost never did it result in, well, we don't need these people anymore. It just meant they got to do more interesting stuff at a bigger scale. Absolutely. Like this is what I find that when I work with new data sets or problems, and once you've kind of, you know, solved the problem, you understand that data, you fix the issues with it. Suddenly having that kind of foundation and curated data set lets you actually build on it and do more interesting things going forward. It's not like, you know, you've done that, you can, you know, you never need to do that again. Yeah. And that's what drew me to the energy sector because it was like, the more I worked with these data sets, the more I understood and the more interesting questions I could answer, which is really yeah. satisfying. Yeah, yeah. And the more things that are batch processes can become almost real time and yeah. really change things. So speaking of data, it sounds like you guys work with a ton of data over there. Give us a sense for the scale. Yeah, so I guess the more standard data set is there's a database that has pretty much everything going on in terms of dispatch on a five-minute basis. And so for most of your uses, if you just want to see what the power station is doing, what it's bidding, you can use that data. It's large, like pulling out some of these data sets, in, it's in you know, 100 or 200 million rows looking at certain parts of it. But the thing I'm working on at the moment, it uh, almost makes this kind of look small. And this is kind of that same data from that same database, but it's on a four-second basis. So a single month of data is about 750 million rows, and it gets all released as thousands of zipped folders containing CSVs, one CSV for every <laughs> half hour in it. And oh my goodness. And so is there like a big process that just goes along, unzips it, grabs it, inserts it into some database or, or something along those lines? I think that was how it got, gets shared in some format. So what I actually, so this is how I was given the data on my current project. And so it's so big, I can't actually unzip it on the machine. So I have to use Python to kind of spin up a number of separate processes that will kind of work through the different zipped folders. It will then use, I think uh, Python has a library called zip file. So it will unzip the folder in memory, read in the CSVs, process them, and then it will eventually concatenate it all back into to a cleaned data frame. 
that I can work with going forward. And so, it, and so then I'm trying to use those sets of tools to try and then turn this into a more compressed, cleaned data set that I can work with <laughs> going forward. So does that fit in memory or do you have to like only pull out slices sort of dynamically with a zip file processing? Yeah, so I, I can fit about a month in memory on my machine. Uh, we do have some large servers and so I will transition to processing this in parallel on the servers, which should get an even better uh, speed up. But yeah, at the, at the moment, I really just kind of look at things on a monthly basis. And, and so what I can actually do is, and then there's a ton of processing I have to do with this four second interval data, because what I can see is I, I will break the data up then into five minute intervals. And I, what I can do is I can see what the generator was doing on a four second basis. And then I can see what its target was. So when they run their optimization, they will say, we know you're sitting at this point here. You have to ramp up to hit this target here at the end of this five-minute period. And so I can use this data to tell how well the generators are actually hitting their targets and how well they're following instructions. But the funny thing is, even though you know you think of four-second data as being you know very, very uh, such a short interval of time, but if you look at some of the uh, the big batteries in the grid, that data is actually too slow for some of the batteries because batteries can actually turn on, inject power and turn off again. And I can miss it in the four second data. Yeah. It's amazing. Some of these oh, wow. big grid scale batteries, uh, like the, um, the big Tesla uh, battery in uh, South Australia at Hornsdale, they're amazing feats of engineering that you really appreciate when you realize you're missing things <laughs> at a four second interval. <laughs> they, they break your sensors and things like that. Yeah, Australia is really well known for having some of these big batteries in the energy sector. I think for some reason, Tesla seemed to have partnered up with you guys to to build these. Yeah, uh, the plan is to roll out a bunch more of these batteries around the grid as well. And they're they're just really impressive. You you know how I mentioned the whole challenge of constantly balancing supply and demand? And really, that's what batteries are so good at doing is... Right. Their response time is almost instant. Yeah, so you could just... They could take it in. Exactly. They could eat the energy or they could initially fill, like immediately fill the gap, right? For a while. Exactly. And and sometimes with some of this data, you can actually see the battery will receive an instruction. It will quickly turn on. It will discharge some power. And then a couple of seconds later, it will actually then, because there's too much power in the grid, the battery will actually then suck up some of that power and recharge and do the opposite effect. (laughs) It's just amazing. Yeah, fantastic. I would love to dive into that, but let's say I'm talking <laughs> because I'm super fascinated with batteries and their potential. Talk Python to me is partially supported by our training courses. When you need to learn something new, whether it's foundational Python, advanced topics like async, or web apps and web APIs, be sure to check out our over 200 hours of courses at Talk Python. And if your company's considering how they'll get up to speed on Python, please recommend they give our content a look. Thanks. With all of this data, you said that you had um, basically learned some good advice, like certain things you can just easily do in Pandas and NumPy on small data sets, maybe not so much on large data sets like that. Give us some of the things that you found to be useful and some yeah, of the tips uh, and tricks. Absolutely. So there's a concept called vectorization. I'm not sure if you've come across it, but it's effectively, how can you apply an operation to a whole column? So you're not writing a manual loop or you know, using conditionals. For instance, if I try to multiply a column with millions of rows by a number, it's really, really fast because that's all kind of you know, optimized C under the hood. And so with a lot of this, when I'm working with smaller data sets, you can get away with doing some manual loops yourself or using um, pandas to group by a column. For instance, I would often say, this is the identifier for a power station. I want you to group by this column by this column identifier and then sum up. And even those things start to become too slow once your data is kind of at this scale. And so the real trick I find is, yeah, it's, it's how do you find ways where you can apply some operation, a calculation to the whole column. And But the tricky part with that starts to be what happens if you want to do conditional calculations. And so what, one of the things I find is Sometimes I want to see how much the output of, on a four-second basis, how much is the generation of a power station changing? And so you can imagine that Pandas has a calculation that lets you effectively calculate the difference between the previous value that came before really, really efficiently. But because, you know, I've got all these different generators and intervals kind of all in the same, you know, data frame, I don't want to uh, consider the first value in a five-minute interval 
because that's inf- affected by you know a different time interval as well. So what you can do is uh, NumPy has these great functionality called where or select, where you can pretty much pass it a column that ev- that turns out to be true or false for the whole data set, and it will then replace the value with something else really efficiently. So what I can do is I can I can run my calculation for the whole column, and then I can use a NumPy where to replace the first value in each five-minute interval with a missing value. And that pretty much does things in you know a few seconds that would have taken, I don't even know how long, with the other way, hours at least. Wow. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I think that that whole computational space with pandas and with NumPy's, there's, you know, like in Python, we speak about Pythonic code, right? You would use a foreign loop instead of trying to index into things and so on. And then there's a whole special flavor of that in the pandas world, right? And a lot of it almost has the guidance of if you're doing a for loop, you're doing it wrong, right? Like there should be some sort of vector operation or something passed into pandas or something along those lines, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's almost like its own kind of type of problem solving in a way, because it's like, how can I apply this calculation to everything in a column, but also in these cases, do something else? That's yeah. really the problem solving in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 It's a, a lot more set based thinking, almost like databases. Yeah. What about things like threading or multiprocessing or, or stuff like that? Like, have you tried to, to scale out some of the things that you're doing in that way? So, yeah. So, we have a server that has about 60 cores and about 700 gig of RAM on it. So, that's the plan is I can, I can shift my things over there once this project 60 uh, cores? That, yes. That's pretty awesome, actually. It's, yeah. it's good. We've, got a, we've got a couple of them, which is very useful for all of the energy modeling that we do. And usually what I, I'm doing is kind of a mix of, yes, using Python's uh, multiprocessing library to try and, yeah, just split. Usually what I'm, I'm doing is I'm just processing a whole heap of uh, data frames in parallel and then concatenating them back into a single data frame once they're kind of processed. That workflow seems to work pretty well for a lot of the, um, the requirements that I have on projects. Yeah, because you can get each subset data frame bit to do its own computation in parallel, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and yeah. so and the other thing too that can also benefit is that usually as part of the cleaning process, I'm kind of subsetting the data as well. So while the data is starting off, you know, at an immense size as well, I'm figuring out which parts of it I need and, and cleaning it. And then so then the data frame I end up concatenating back together can be of a more manageable size as well. Right, right, right. Interesting. Have you looked at uh, Dask? For any of this? Yes, we've had. I did some work on the server with for a different project, looking at it, and I think Dask might be once I've kind of built up the uh, a more curated version of this four second interval data. I think Dask will probably be what I'll use on the server for working with the whole data set in the future. Yeah, it sounds like it might really be. I mean, I haven't actually tried to apply to that much data that you got there, but it's. Sort of its functionality, it sounds like it really might be the thing to do because it'll take it basically your description of breaking into the mini data frames, having them run and then bringing it back together. That sounds to me like uh, what Dask is built for, right? Yeah. And the brilliance as well, I think, of the Dask project is how they were able to kind of emulate the Python, uh, sorry, the Pandas way of doing things as well, which yeah. is great because, you know, it's nice not to have to relearn too many things yeah. and be efficient. From the beginning. Also, I, sh- I should probably just flag as well that these data sets that I'm working with, the four second interval and then the actual database on the five minute basis, one of the things that got me so into the energy sector and that's, I think, unique in a way about the Australian energy market, although I stand to be corrected, is that this is all public data. If you want, you can go and download all of this data from the market operator's website, which is you know, an amazing amount of kind of openness to be able to go in and look at what these power stations are doing and what prices they were getting on such a granular basis as well. That's been really what's fascinated me. Yeah, that's super cool. You know, if um, people are out there trying to do research, working on a thesis or something like that, they could just grab this data. And it's, like you said, it's real. And a lot of people have both physical machine reasons and financial reasons to keep it accurate, right? Yes, absolutely. And and really, I guess I come back to that, that original point where the limitation for this data isn't how clean it is or the amount of data. It's just understanding the processes well enough to know what you can do with it. Right. A little bit like that example you had about the solar farms versus coal farm, uh, coal 
generation, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Know that I mean different things. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Other advice or interesting things going on before we, we're getting short on time, but anything else you want to throw out there? Work with all this data? One of the areas I'm, I'm quite interested in at the moment is uh, Python's number library, mm-hmm. N-U-M-B-A. Yeah. Which kind of, I think it uses the, uh, able to kind of compile Python code under the hood to get really high performance and it can be perfect for, um, for my use. And, and the reason I'm rather interested in it is that if I, if I can vectorize a calculation, you know how I'm applying it to the whole column. But for instance, if I'm trying to do some calculation where the, uh, I want to loop through it because my current calculation depends on the state of a previous calculation, then that can be a limitation of this kind of uh, vectorization approach. Whereas, right, right. You can't just apply it to the set and go, hey, every row here, just look back at yourself a little bit in that, that place and then do the thing. It, it's got some, some dependencies yeah. on what happened before, right? And that, I have no idea how you would fix that. Maybe it's possible, but it's very tricky, right? And so number does that, okay? So number is, is effectively a way to write Python loops that run as fast as C, but within for numeric calculations. So this is why I'm very interested in, in this for some of the areas that are a little bit trickier for me to vectorize using data frames. I'm very interested in the number library as a solution for some of those challenges. Yeah, so number makes Python code fast, it says. It's an open source JIT compiler that translates a subset of Python and NumPy code into fast machine code. So I haven't used it, but it sounds like it really knows about NumPy in addition, right? Because you could use Cython, but Cython doesn't necessarily know anything about NumPy, for example, right? Yes, Uh, yeah, you're you're exactly right. Like in a way, number has kind of replaced what I would have used Cython for in the past for my application. What I could do, say for instance, if I have yeah, a NumPy array and I want to loop through it and there's some calculation I want to do and then my next calculation depends on that previous calculation going forward, this lets me do that. Uh, yeah, in, in a way, and, and I'm writing Python code. I don't have to write C or C++. You can see it. You're literally adding decorators, just like you know um, how Flask has uh, that lovely kind of uh, decorator syntax. It's almost like yeah. that. To an extent. Yeah, exactly. You you say at number.jit and then do and you want this to run in parallel or not? Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> exactly. And also it even has uh lets you run your um calculations in parallel as well. You can see that little parallelism true. And it's actually yeah. true parallelism without the gill as well, which is amazing. Yeah, this is super interesting. I knew that it was a compiler along the lines of Cython, but I didn't realize that it had this special integration with NumPy. That's very neat. Yeah, I re- really recommend like I think but for most people, pandas is probably what you need. But if you're running into these kinds of, yeah, these types of problems, then I think number would be a solution before you, you would have to look to a, necessarily have to look to a different programming language. Yeah, absolutely. And like, this is how I started off our, our conversation together. The performance side of Python is super interesting because it's like, oh, well, it's not really fast enough. Until you apply this decorator, then all of a sudden it's just as fast and it's amazing. Right? There's just yep. all these little yep. edge cases that are super neat. Yep. Very, very cool. I look back to some of the code I wrote during you know, my PhD and, some of, and I cringe at some of you know, the bad performance practices I probably had for working with them. But, <laughs> and, and I think this, this comes back to you know, your point about having people in the team who are a bit more experienced in this area because if you can have people who understand this can point team members to these tools for optimizing their code. And I think that can deal with a lot of the issues for people who may not be as experienced with writing Python themselves. Yeah, that's super advice. And then if you've got data that maybe is like the other side of your story, it's like too big to fit in RAM or uh, you want more sort of uh, automatic rather parallelism across, say, a large data frame, then Dask is definitely a good thing to look at. Absolutely. All right, Jack. This has been super interesting. I think we're getting a little long on time. I don't want to take up your entire day. So I will have to call it a, a call it a show on that bit. No problem. But before we get out of here, of course, you have to answer the two final questions, as always. <laughs> so if you're going to write some code, work on some of these projects, what editor do you use? VS Code, especially since they added Jupyter Notebooks into the uh, editor as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to see both what VS Code and PyCharm are doing to try to Bring either just bring notebooks into the space or try to come up with a more native alternative, right? Like, well, here's a cell and it's separated by like this special comment, but you can still run it in notebook style, but it's like feels like a text file you're working with. And yeah, it's an exciting time for that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you've already sh- given a shout out to a couple of different projects, but uh, any notable PyPI packages you want to tell people about? Yeah. I mean, 
Numbers the one I'm fascinated with in terms of learning more about at the moment. But I think for in terms of getting things done, just pandas and geopandas and, and the kind of scientific stack, it's just it's amazing what people the code that people have done that makes me so effective just by understand just being being able to use their libraries. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal, yeah. Are you a Jupiter or a Jupiter Lab person or something else? I used mainly Jupiter, mainly because at least at the time when I tried out Jupiter Lab, I couldn't collapse some of the outputs from the cells as well. They may have fixed that, but I'll take a peek at Jupiter Lab every uh, every couple of months or so and see what's what's new. All right, as well. fantastic. All right, well, final call action. People are interested in maybe they work in energy somewhere else in the world, or they're trying to do research with it. What do you tell them? If you're interested, get in touch with me. We've, we run a few meetups for energy modelers in Sydney. So if you're ever interested in getting in touch to chat about some of the data in Australia or some of the work we're doing, feel, feel free. Is that Zoomable these days or is it in person? The plan is, yeah, for the meetup to be set up as a Zoom one. So uh, that's the plan. Yep. All right. Fantastic. Well, Jack, it's been great to have you here. Thanks so much for sharing what you're up to. Thanks so much, Michael. It was great meeting you. And thanks for having me. Yeah. You keep the lights on down under. <laughs> Thank you. I will. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Have a good night. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Jack Simpson, and it's been brought to you by Square, Linode, and Assembly AI. With Square, your web app can easily take payments, seamlessly accept debit and credit cards, as well as digital wallet payments. Get started building your own online payment form in three steps with Square's Python SDK at talkpython.fm slash square. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the Create Free Account button to get started. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash Assembly AI. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.